Hello and welcome back. My name is Chris Marquardt. This is The Future of Photography. And with me, as usual, some other people. <laughs> Today, it's Adrian. Hi, Adrian. <laughs> hey, mate. How you doing? <laughs> and Jeremiah. Hi, Jeremiah. Hello, hello, hello. Some other people. Yeah, Ima is missing today. She's not here. She has some family obligations. So we're keeping the torch up for her in this episode. <sighs> How was Thanksgiving? Uh, drunken the, as, and uh, delicious. As it's supposed to be. We're <laughs> recording this right after Thanksgiving. Uh, Adrian, That's any it. Thanksgiving on your side? Uh, well, I consider the USA to be one of our greatest ever startups. <laughs> 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 How's that going for you? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> you know no, it, how it, many startups <laughs> fail? <laughs> Well, 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 well mo most of them, quite frankly, having done several that's startups right. myself, actually, I always, sorry, the, for, for those of our US listeners, I do not mean that as an insult. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, we just, just lost half of our listeners. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Jer Jeremiah is going to bring them back. You know, it's all right. I, I, I will. I will. <laughs> oh, the pressure. You know, uh, <laughs> you know our, our, our DNA is, uh, is good. Uh, it, it's what happens when uh, Darwinism kind of interferes and you have these kind of adjustments in species. Soon we'll be rid of the human species and everything will get yeah, back we'll to normal. We're working oh. on that. Um, no, the, <laughs> the, reason, the reason I'm asking is I'm, I'm generally, genuinely curious because we don't really do Thanksgiving here in Germany. So that's... I, it's not a thing in the UK either. Um, I attended a Thanksgiving in Ireland once. And it was a lot of eating and a lot of drinking. <laughs> a lot of sad poetry. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, the topic that we've chosen for today is nothing to do with Thanksgiving whatsoever. Um, but it is a photography-related topic, of course. And it's uh, about a different kind of photography, about moving pictures. And uh, as we have... Uh well how how would how would I call you a Hollywood veteran on the show <laughs> Jeremiah <laughs> like veteran of foreign wars <laughs> well isn't isn't it sometimes like that most of the time most of the time so yes uh, you are pretty you, unscathed yeah you you are you are uh, you are in that topic pretty much every day um so I thought we we just look at some things and and look at a bit of how things have developed, how photography has developed, how production has changed over the years. Um, yeah, and you and have how, how one influences the other too. I exactly. Mean, you, have, you know, people talk now about quote cinematic filters or yes. drones with you know a cinematic. Um, motions move yeah, that, that, exactly. that, that slows it down and, and makes it a little more um, fluid. So there is that influence of, of cinematic to photography and the reverse, which is how kind of really bold photography has now very much influenced um, image making in cinema. I mean, mm. it has all, you know, for many, many years, but now as audiences are. Uh, increasingly uh, sophisticated about um, their visual um, acuity. In other words, they can read images, read styles intuitively or consciously. That affects how they perceive the same kind of qualities on a moving image. And, and uh, those are, I think, uh, very, very significant change. 
Right. And, and 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 yes, I think I think that's really important to understand that the technology doesn't matter if it's moving pictures or stills, but the technology and the and the the the, the artsy side, the creative side of things have always influ always influenced each other quite a bit. I I think that we could probably expand that conversation and maybe that's a subject for another day about how all creative work um influences each other um you know how one looks at a painting from the 18th century i mean my i think my work is very influenced my my landscape work by turner mm -hmm. you know i i couldn't describe why uh certainly when you look at some of the things that people are doing on photoshop for example or in photoshop that kind of turner-esque abstraction um, of of the quality of, of weather, clouds, light, etc., are very, very much present in uh, photographic um, neorealism, shall we say? And, and I think those are things that, if you expand it out to the cinematic universe, it becomes, uh, you know, rather um, an integrated thing. So there, you know, there's painting, there's sound, there's you know the the visual. There is certainly the technological, which we'll talk about. You know, I, I say everything is in the service uh, of story, and we must never lose sight of that. Uh, I think the fundamental difference between photography and cinema, for me, practicing both, um, I'm very much uh, conscious of the way image making both on a technical level and on us and and I'm very much conscious that on an aesthetic level and on a technical level that the decisions that I make all serve story and character that's and really interesting in in, in photography I don't I, I photography is for me an intuitive participation in an appreciation of the world or my imagination or something, but it's much more intuitive for me. Uh, it's, it's, so many things are going through my head right now, just, just, uh, and in, in, in no particular order. Uh, for some reason, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, uh, the film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which, if I understand it, was the first, if, not, if one of the first, if not the first film to be uh, coloured in, in, po in digital post-production. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, where, you know, uh, if you've ever seen any of the ungraded footage from that, all of those landscapes are quite green and lush, and yet they're very yellow and dried out in 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 the post production color uh, color coloring of it. Um, and, I, and I'm thinking, how does that, you know, how does that support the narrative? Um, uh, and you know, and then then I'm reminded of uh, another movie. Uh, let me get the right name. I think The Hurt Locker. Mm -hmm. And and the the use of color in 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 that movie, and because the location uh, or the, uh, where they where they made it uh, was uh, a dry desert type climate, um, what they've done is they've switched around the traditional use of color, and and actually the 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 scary dangerous uh, environments are actually colored quite warmly, <laughs> and the safe. 
um, military base type locations are actually colored in in bluer colors you know cooler colors and that's a bit of a switch around from how color often gets treated where warm is warm colors equal warm cozy feeling and safety and happiness and cool colors equal scary and horror movie Um, sure post-production coloring is is something that has really been very influential in commercials for many years before it it came to cinema, shall we say? Not that, Is that grading. Right? Oh, right. Okay. oh yeah, because uh, we had been because you're you're making a thirty or sixty second commercial. You can afford the time at that point. You were using an Ursa, I think that was the name of the machine, uh, to color effectively frame by frame. You didn't really have the kind of memory that that you could kind of create a a, a frame store and just the AI would draw it across the entire scene. That came later, and that that's why O oh Brother really kind of worked in that. They they wanted very much. I know the cinematographer, and they, they 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 needed something that really approximated kind of the the dry west, shall we say? Yeah. Um, yes. But, yeah. And, and they did it very very effectively. And you know now it's 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 kind of common to do that, but coloring. Uh, has been something that in commercials where where I started my kind of cinematic career for what it was um is something that we we really were very very uh engaged in for many many years before it came to cinema because I remember you know coloring or or what we call color grading or timing uh film used to be the process of I was living in New York and you know you, you would go to the basement of Technicolor and work with um, the colorist, and they would run the film, and you would basically be go- be going, you know, more cyan, you know, <laughs> more red, and the the colorist <laughs> was making notes furiously, um, and and you just kind of be, there was no stop start. You would just run the film, sound off, and you would give notes, 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 and then you'd go away for a few days. They'd come and they'd run another print, and you'd give more notes, and eventually that became a little more. Um, quieted down when you could stop and start the film and really have a discussion about it, but you're still working off off film. Once we moved into digital post, everything became a lot easier uh, in terms of color grading. And um, even the kind of approximation of different film looks, i.e., you know, more grain, less grain, more contrast, less contrast, you know, you could you could do sec- secondary color correction by like, you know, I love cyan in shadows. You know, I, I that's just a personal choice. Not that I would use it for everything, but you could actually like in, you know, current day post production in photography. You could you, you know you could you could take any nuance of color and adjust it. You know, in terms of its luminance, in terms of its brightness, in terms of its intensity, and the actual warmth of that color and you could do that throughout your image and there you go. Um, so selective now, now of course it. as well, yeah. you know, e- yeah. e- even, even with, even with editing video, you can do that selectively and you can, exactly. you can draw yeah. magic frames that follow people's faces and things like that. Oh, yeah. all, all sorts of stuff. Now you, you said something interesting um, that uh, the moment it changed into digital post-production which I think still is the case even for for the directors that still shoot on film. The the entire post-production is or has been for quite a while in digital. Yes, 
Um, I did a I did a um, a film uh, years ago, and um, I, I was given kind of carte blanche in terms of what format I used to capture, whether it was digital or film. Who decides that? Well, it's it can be a negotiation. Okay. Uh, depending on the the cost, depending on how much you are going to employ special effects. Uh, obviously, if you're going to do a lot of special effects, um, you know we used to do traditionally shoot in seventy millimeter uh, for the you know for the green screen because it would be reduced, etc. And you would try to match your quality back to thirty five when you were kind of using the center of the frame. Um, now you know even you know a lot of a lot of effects films would be uh, shot in eight K in order to reduce it to 6K or 4K for later release. Um, so obviously the, the equipment becomes part of the discussion in terms of budget. If you have a studio that is spending X hundred million dollars on a film, I think they're, you know, they, they care only as much as it fits into their kind of bigger scheme. If you're doing a, <clears throat> sorry, if you're doing a medium, uh, you know, medium-sized budget, say for a studio, say twenty to thirty million, that becomes uh, very, very uh, much a part of the discussion with the heads of production. Because remember, you're capturing digitally. Um, the storage of your assets becomes a significant um, kind of knock-on when the film is done. Because remember, all of those assets in the multiple terabytes have to be stored. And by storing terabytes, you have to keep upgrading the systems constantly mm -hmm. to refresh them so that you don't end up with uh, your whole film on IBM floppy disks. <laughs> no and one you, can read. And you don't, so. <laughs> you don't just want to keep the master. You want to keep the individual assets because you might, um, you might reuse some of that later. Yeah, so obviously, you know, your 35 millimeter assets are great. You you can keep them in a cool dry place in a vault and, you know, uh, they're really they're not going to degrade. Um now what we're seeing is, you know, you take a digital master and they'll make a film color separation and that's how they'll do it. But they'll do that on the finished product. Imagine every take, every you know, every instance, both on the audio and the video, that becomes a significant part of the discussion. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you talk about is if you're moving around massive cameras, you need massive cranes, you need a lot more bodies, you know, everything kind of is tied into the budget. So that's a discussion. If you're doing a smaller budget movie, then as long as you can choose your... um your capture device, which could be anything from a iPhone currently um, to you know a you know an Alexa, um, you you pretty well have have you know free reign. I you know when I made the decision on on this film, I really wanted uh, a sense of of I don't know call it uh, neorealism, uh, and uh, so. Did a lot of of kind of testing on all manner of from 35 to 4K digital capture, and the thing that captivated me most in terms of the aesthetic, in terms of capture, not finish, 
was um, Ari's uh, 16 millimeter, I want to say it was an SR, but I'm probably getting that wrong. But it was the last film camera that I believe they made. It was an absolutely stunning piece of mechanics and engineering. You could change magazines instantly. It shot in in 16 millimeter. So you'd capture in 16 millimeter, which I had the lab push to like, I don't know, maybe 800. And then we we kind of, you know, brought it in and increased the contrast somewhat to kind of enhance the grain. I was operating a second or third camera, and I had in in my viewfinder, I had cut out a a mat within the 16 millimeter frame that approximate approximated a uh, an eight millimeter frame and for certain sequences and and then when i captured it i blew it up in post so that the grain was extremely enhanced uh i went to black and white and increased the contrast so it was very um crispy you know it, it had a quality that was very specific filmically and that, and, but that uh, was a creative worked, decision at that point. Cre- totally creative decision. And it, it was really, really something um, that you couldn't do if you captured it digitally. Uh, but capturing it with film and then enhancing it, that combination was something that um, is, I think, pretty recent. And so now you have the tools to really do um, whatever you need to do to support the story. And I keep underscoring that because all your decisions, if your decisions are just based on, oh, that's going to look pretty or that's going to look um, kind of uh, glowy or I like backlight and you enforce an aesthetic before you kind of address its relationship with story, you're going to get into trouble because people go like, well, that was pretty, but forgetful. So... (laughs) So, that's, so, that's, th- that's something that we still photographers can learn from too. I, I, I think I, I, I think th- there is. Yeah. I mean, I think de- definitely. I mean, I I, I consistently look uh, to cinematography for inspiration for my for my stills photo- photo- photography. Excuse me. Um, and uh, actually, when we come to the the picture of the week, my pick of the week is exa- is related to exactly that. Um, but it it is. Uh, I'm I'm interested in yeah I I guess there's a couple of questions that spring to mind from the last part of the conversation. Uh, we'll, one we'll come back to, which is how does the advent of uh, how does the advent of uh, large format, so-called large format uh, mo- movie cameras, actually um, Im- impact the dis- those decisions, if at all? Are you talking um, but, IMAX? Uh, well, no, I'm or seventy millimeter. I'm talking about digital large format, actually. Um, well, you know, the, the, the arrows and, and reds. And, uh, yeah, but the sensors are bigger as well, though, aren't they, in a lot yeah. of cases? Um, and so, you know, where, where you've got the, the other bit that springs to mind is where you have, um, I, I, I saw not so long ago um, a, a snippet of the script for uh, The Hateful Eight. 
mm-hmm. uh, the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. And and it showed that he actually, it, when he's writing scripts, he actually writes those kind of creative choices you've been talking about, Jeremiah, into the script. So he will say, apparently, um, you, know, you know, cut cut to scene of, uh, this is the beginning of The Hateful Eight. So cut to scene of wagon with horses, you know, um, distant shot, blah, 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 shot in 70 mil. Right. And and he's he's actually making those making those creative decisions at the script writing stage, presumably because he gets to do that because of who he is, right? Because he is also he is not just the director or just the writer; he is both. Um, and so he and, and because he has clearly a very very strong mental image of what he's trying to produce, and also sufficient technical know how uh, and craft to understand how how to use equipment to achieve his visual impact. Um, uh, you know, it, it, I, I, I'm guessing going back to your uh, going back to your example there, Jeremiah, or, or other work, you, you, you've often had to collaborate maybe with with um, technicians and craftspeople, uh, you know, a director of photography, possibly even the screenwriters as well, to make those decisions. Um, y- yes and no. Um, in terms of of the first part of the issue when you are writing your own work your script is as much notes to yourself on the day than you know it's when you're doing your own script and writing it to be directed by you your script really is a function has the function of creating notes for yourself it also helps to translate that to your cinematographer because the cinematographer will also understand what that means. The 70 millimeter choice, what he's really saying is, I want this to feel super sharp, heightened, you know what I mean? Um, Really, really crisp. uh, And then we'll, you know, then we can transit to something a little more dreamy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, When you are interpreting another uh, writer's um, screenplay into your own visual sensibility. There are two things uh, at work, and and we can discuss the these kind of parallel paths. There's a difference when you're doing a movie and when you're doing a television series or you're doing a miniseries. Those are very different choices, and the discussion of Equipment becomes very much a part of the overall discu- discussion, you know, i.e., what lab you're working, where you're going to shoot it, how many people are on your crew, what you can afford, and if it's a TV series, what is the look established already? You're not going to go and change the look of the show. When you're doing a movie, you have to make your best arguments. Uh, to your financiers of why your equipment choices make the most sense. Um, if, you know, and I say if, that's a factor, i.e. the discussion of budget and, and equipment, then you have to make an argument. But oftentimes it's not. Nowadays, if you're shooting a movie, you know, you're going to generally choose one of three or four different, you know, you maybe shoot on a red, maybe you shoot it on a Sony, maybe you shoot it on Alexa. You're not going to veer off unless it's a very specific piece. Often you may combine film and digital, but 
but again, it serves the story. And, and the, we can't lose sight of what kind of lighting package one needs. For example, I'm very curious to take it upon myself to shoot a, um, a, a film that would use no lighting. In other words, choose all my locations based on the natural light that falls on the environments that I choose. And that goes for night and day with increased ISO possibilities and fast lenses. There's such a high degree of capture. Well, you know, that would be a very exciting thing. Can, can it be done? Sure. Uh, can it be done effectively? Um, I.e., do we have to wait for to shoot a scene until four o'clock with a crew standing around waiting Probably. for the to be nice? Probably, yeah. You, and you'll have the Is, gaffers union against you. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they they will all carry their reflector boards. Uh, oh, so so reflectors are okay. I get it. We're okay. okay. We're okay. Yeah, reflectors are okay. Uh, you know, art department is okay. But by the way, you could eliminate those too. Um, as photographers, we now we've gone into you know situations uh, documenting them, and with with the only thing we have is our you know our cameras, our phone, our sensibility, and and capture it, and it looks amazing. So um, all things again are are you know there's a lot of moving parts in aesthetic judgments on a film. Uh, for example, when I got my first film, which was Christmas Vacation. Um, I, my work as a commercial director uh, was very influenced by my photographic um, sensibility. Uh, it was very kind of cool, dark, fast, cutty, edgy, you know, sexy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I get this comedy, broad comedy, and that takes place in say Middle America and Chicago. And I have to make a choice. My instinct as a creative person is, well, you know, I like to shoot dark and cool and long lenses and stacked up and all of that stuff. But that's not going to work for that movie. I have to go to Norman Rockwell, to Courier and Ives, to a more kind of classic Americana aesthetic. And I choose the the kind of light, the kind of locations, the kind of sets we built, the style to suit that kind of universal, non-edgy, non-aging aesthetic that gives it a more classical feel. That was, for me, a very, um, it, uh, it was discipline for me to do that, because that's not an aesthetic that I you know, that I normally walk in. I, I, I tend to not like things that are overlit, that are too bright, you know, that have that kind of cheery atmosphere. So I had to learn and appreciate that particular sense, uh, you know, of, of, of light and, and, and aesthetic in order to fulfill the obligations of the story I wanted to tell. And you cannot talk any more about Christmas Vacation because Imar will kill us if we do. <laughs> <laughs> we had to promise. <laughs> okay. I, I promise I won't tell the squirrel story. <laughs> you, will, you, you, you can when she's back. That's right. Um, but, but all of these things, 
you know, the, the selection of your aesthetic um, is very much tied to what you can afford, what's available, who your collaborators are. So you were asking me about the collaboration of uh, cinematographers. I work with a lot of cinematographers from the, you know, extremely famous uh, to people who haven't, you know, achieved that level of fame, who are also very, very brilliant. And the selection of a cinematographer um, is, you know, one of the most important um, uh, collaborators that any director will make. Um, you, you lean on your cinematographer, you lean on your editor, you lean on your assistant director. Those are, are kind of your mainstays in order for you to devote as much time to the nuancing of performance with your actors. So in talking with a cinematographer, one learns to uh, adjust the language in a different way. For example, I would never say, uh, I want you to put uh, a 10K through the window and then, you know, just put an inky in the corner and highlight that, blah, blah, blah. No. What I would say is, I want the room to feel XXX. And then I would describe the feeling, the emotional feeling, because what I want from the cinematographer is I want to raise their creative energy, to get their creative juices flowing so they feel participants in this creative process so the, the, that the, the pieces are greater, you know, the individual make the sum so much more powerful. So if you involve people in kind of bringing their expertise into the emotional center of what you're doing on a micro and a macro level, you're going to get the best out of them rather than telling them what to do. Now, that's having, having said that, I have been in situations where it mainly happens in television, where a cinematographer is trying to get through the day in an efficient way and making choices for efficiency that are counter to how I see the scene and have basically insisted that they use, you know, a 35 millimeter lens, not a 75 millimeter lens, and they move the camera in and that will require more lighting uh, or an adjustment of lighting. So I've had to do that sometimes as well, because you're faced with cinematographers who are already hired. You, as a director for hire, may just drop in to do that particular episode. Um, on the other hand, you drop into a scenario with a cameraman you've never worked with, and within two hours are blown away by what this person is bringing to the aesthetics. And, you know, you become joined at the hip and start pushing each other into framing discussions and the discussions on movement. Um, I, I don't want to overlook the importance of a camera operator because a camera operator is as much an artist as anyone on set. They are providing the dance, the fluidity, the framing. You know, early on when we worked, before we had, you know, a lot of dependence on 
video assist. And even in the early days of video assist, when we were watching, you, you know, I would tend to sit by the camera and watch the performance. And if it was a very complex move, as soon as I would call cut, then you turn to the operator and go, how was that? And the how was that was, you know, did you catch any kind of weird things in the frame? Was the move perfect? Did the person hit their mark right? Because you're not watching that. You're watching just the performance and you're depending on that operator to say, yes, this is what we rehearsed. It was great. Or I need one more. Let me. And so that's a whole other. Let me, let me go back one step um, to an aspect that I think is feel, feels like it's the most important, and that is communication. Because uh. you have to, I believe, if you work with a, with, a, um, with a director of photography and with other people there, and you have to convey those creative thoughts and those creative concepts that, that you have, that, that you constantly have to hone your vocabulary, your language, uh, the way you convey that, and you constantly have to adapt to different people doing that. That's a hundred percent right, and and it it changes day by day. It changes based on even things um, as. <laughs> mundane sitting here day after Thanksgiving, you know, relaxed. But if you're faced with, no, we have two hours to finish this scene before the sun drops and it's a big scene, that discussion with your cinematographer and everyone, uh, but primary, primarily your cinematographer, of how are we going to get the best out of this scene in the time we have, time I'm management. Time critical, it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and when I when I teach uh, directing, sometimes I do to graduate students. The, generally, I'll I'll do this as a little aside. Very first class, they all come in and they want to talk about equipment and cameras and <laughs> cutting and gear, <clears throat> and I say, okay, first lesson. Here's a camera. Here are two actors. They're going to sit opposite each other on this table. Uh, I'm going to give you a scenario. There's no dialogue. You're just going to create a, you know, one minute scene uh, of a brother and sister uh, having sat down after a sibling or a parent's funeral. And you have to convey that. You have one hour to shoot this, half hour on each side. And then uh, you use next week to edit, put music, and then we'll judge it. And they're like, "What?" <laughs> and then, <laughs> then for the next group, for the next person in the class, I go, "This is a boss and and uh, a secretary contemplating an affair." Go, you know, and <laughs> and but you put that time constraint because time management is very much part of the discussion. So going back to the original question is about how to communicate when you've worked with a cameraman for over, you know, many years, say, and you go like, we got to do this in an hour, they'll look at you and go, got it. You know, they're not going to go, yes, but I want to move. I want to do this and that and this and that. No, because you both understand the parameters. On the other hand, when you're doing a movie, you've spent a lot of time in prep talking about a particular scene that is required to create a mood, something very significant. Another aside question, you know, piece from another movie. He did a movie called Benny and June. Benny and June had a, a 
relatively limited budget. Um, you know, it wasn't nothing, but it wasn't all in. So in prep, I had to decide which scenes ahead of time uh, I could cover, and by cover for audience don't know, take a lot of different pieces uh, to be able to manage in uh, post the cutting pattern of that. So I'd maximize it to give me the most uh, opportunities when I was in the editing room to shape the scene. Then I would have another scene that I would have a little bit of coverage, so enough to get me um, a good shape to the scene. And then I would have one scene that I would literally have no time for any cover. And I had to really make, just because of the schedule and the time and everything like that, I had to make that, those decisions ahead of time. And, you know, so it turns out, so I made these decisions, and some of the scenes where you initially you go like, oh, it'd be great to do X, Y, and Z, I had to basically do this in what we call in cinema a one In other words, one shot for the entire scene, hmm. no cuts, that's it. You're locked in. And, you know, at the end of the day, when the film was put together, so many people responded to those single-take oneers. You know, they, they love the simplicity of it because the performance, the story, is what was important. You can never lose sight of that. And so sometimes, if you look at the first movie that Jim Jarmusch did, uh, Down by Law, I think yep. it's called. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think those are all done in a master take. This, I mean, le one. this left a big impression on me, that movie. Yeah. I'm not, because, sure, if, you know, I'm not sure I know that one. Have I missed something in my, in my filmic yeah. education? There? Yes, you, yes, you Defin have. Definitely, yeah. I mean, you know, he would set the frame and let the actors come in and out and do their work and then move. I mean, do you remember, uh, what is it, um, German director ha uh, Happy, oh, God, about, oh, you, Chris, you're going to know this uh, director. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh it's about uh this couple who move to this country house and these two guys knock on the door and want to borrow a cup of sugar or something like that and they just take uh, over uh, <laughs> take if they no remade idea, it sorry, uh, i know i know but no, it is I it's don't. Brutal. I can't remember the title, but I know. I know exactly. Do you know the, you mean. Yes. And, and, and there, there are scenes that are just framing the door, and people are screaming outside of the frame, and you know your imagination is uh, a lot more activated than if you're, you know, actually seeing the horrible things that are happening. That's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because that, the, you know, you, you've just what you've described there is the audience funny games, imagination. I think it's called funny but, games. Right. You've just got you're describing there the audience thing, but you're but also when you're describing you know having to shoot things and having to make decisions and and do things in an hour or do things on a on a lower budget for particular elements, that then is also a constraint that drives creativity, isn't it? Um, it well, absolutely, uh, the, uh, that that's a that's a excellent um, point because sometimes when you are instinctively resisting and and a lot of younger film students are in that world you know they 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 really want a certain thing that's in their head they don't kind of think about the management of, of everything but when you have you know 20 minutes to do 
like a page of dialogue with an actor and you're just running and you have a good relationship with that actor and they're they're out there and you go like, okay, just put the camera here. You know what I mean? We'll come around here. We'll just kind of start a very slow zoom and and go. Sometimes, often, those things turn out absolutely magically. The Your choices on the instinctive level are often so much more dynamic than the choices you make in your um in your head if that makes sense yes you know i'm thinking that through so let's hold that thought um and it was funny games by the way uh, michael yeah. haneke is the yeah. director <laughs> yeah. um, i'm gonna I just have to go and watch that one aren't i <laughs> oh yeah yes definitely too um not the American version. Watch the German version. Yes. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll it's, look out it's for that. Horrific. <laughs> All right. I'm. I'm just realizing that this could become a three-hour episode, and we don't it want to do this be. because people <laughs> no, have things to do, especially especially as the holidays are upon us. So, um, why don't we take the rest of this into a couple of other episodes and split it up into sure, bits? Call I, it part one. Call this, it, I this think is, so. Yeah. This is part Definitely. one. Yes. So we'll, there, we'll there, have a, I sense there's a lot more to talk about here, and I wouldn't want to oh cut yeah, we, short we the conversation, the but, but we it, probably yeah. should cut short the conversation. <laughs> there is. So let's shelf the rest for one of the next episodes and uh, get to the picks of the week. Adrian, what's yours? Well, do you know what? Uh, I, 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 I teased this a little bit earlier. My, my pick of the week actually is, is a Wikipedia page. Um, and the link's in the show note, of course. And it's simply the Academy Award for Best Cinematography. And, and it has uh, all of them. This is, it is since, uh, since whatever the, the, the year dot, 1927, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it lists both the film and, and the, and the uh, cinematographer. Uh, and it's a place where I go quite frequently to find movies to watch. At this point, I've seen quite a lot of these, at least especially the winners, but this lists the nominees as well. Uh, and so what you've got here from a photographer's point of view uh, is a huge body of inspiring work, um, which is something that, that I love and, and I dip into every now and again, especially when I have a, a couple of hours to myself and I can watch the sort of movie that nobody else in my house likes to watch. <laughs> Very cool. But yeah, link in the show notes uh, and and just go there and 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 be amazed at the names uh, that you see uh, the you know uh, and and um, uh, both of the movies and of and of the cinematographers uh, and dive in is what is my advice. Great, cool. Uh, my pick of the week is uh, is a podcast episode, and it's from a podcast that um, that deals with design in all sorts of facets. Um, you might have heard of it. It's called 99% Invisible. Oh, yes. I listen to this weekly. Yes. And uh, this, is not, this, is, this episode is not directly photography related, but it is about design. It's about architecture. It's about putting things together. Uh, the title of that episode is The Audio Guide to the Imperfections of a Perfect Masterpiece. And it's uh, the host wow. Roman Mars has done an audio guide for visitors of the Guggenheim Museum. And it goes through the history of the museum at different places and talks about how, why some of the decisions have been done the way they have been or how things have changed over time, what is still the original vision, what has changed. 
Um, and if you are into photography, if you're into putting things together visually, then architecture belongs there too. So um, I think that's a very good fit. So I'll link that episode in the show notes. Yeah. And people should just subscribe to that as well, actually, because it's an awesome podcast, has been for many years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pl plenty of good stuff in there. Yeah. I second or third that. Um, my, pick of the, my pick of the week is really <laughs> probably about part two of our conversation. Or part three. Kind of, <laughs> or part three about the, the future of, of kind of the cinematic universe and how things are that changing. That still fits here. Uh, it, 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 it's a podcast. It comes, I mean, it's a podcast. It's a, it's a website um, uh, created by the people at Epic um, for Unreal Engine. And it title is Exploring the Future of Virtual Production. And virtual production is, I think, one of the most exciting, we'll call it bleeding edge aspects of of the way we can tell stories, the way we can use uh, cinematics, photography, um, digital creation, painting, um, all, all things that we need integrated into a specific aesthetic that we can control pretty much everything in our framing devices. Um, and in, you know, in many cases, I think, uh, one of these years, we're going to be able to create uh, synthetic actors that we can fall in love with. I mean, we don't know if that's a year off or a hundred years off. We don't really know. Uh, but it's pretty point. obvious that this is going to happen sooner or later. <laughs> I think it, it, I, I think it is. We don't we don't know for sure. I mean, the uncanny valley of it all um, does kind of pull us back always from that emotional connection to a character. But I think at some point that the the magic something that allows a human to look at a what they think is another human um, is still missing. But what that ingredient is, I think, is beyond just a technical or processing. Uh, yeah, I, I, decision. I agree. I'm reading a really intriguing else. book at the moment, actually, which I might use as a pick of the week shortly. Uh, but uh, uh, it, that, that is related, it's, it's at least tangentially related to that. Um, but I think this, way, this your pick of the week, Jeremiah, is definitely a good resource for for our listeners to go and do a little bit of reading up before we pu yes, publish the rest so, of this conversation, it's, isn't it? <laughs> it's very, it's very, very exciting and. You can download a field guide um, from the site, I think, if you kind of move into and, and register it. Um, but it, it just gives you um, a, a taste of the kind of things that are possible in terms of creating an epic film, literally in, you know, in a incredibly small space. Sounds like I have some reading to do myself between this show and the next one we do on this topic. Some, some reading and some catching up on movies and podcasts, for sure. Abs absolutely. All right. Um, I guess that covers it for today. We'll be back in a week with more, maybe not on specifically this topic. I think we'll have to, to regroup and, and find a good way to continue this discussion. But please, um, we, will, <laughs> yes. we will come back to it. That's a promise. Um, but we will be back next week with another episode about something photographic and uh, something about the future of photography. Until then, you can find us online on the web at thefutureofphotography.com. You can find us on Twitter 
at tfopnow. And uh, of course, on our website, you'll find ways to contact us and let us know what you think. So we're looking forward to hearing from you and we'll be back until then. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Future of Photography, a production by Adrian Stock and Chris Marquardt. Subscribe to the show wherever you get your other podcasts. Find the show notes and more information at thefutureofphotography.com. Thank you.